Well, I have read that the baby boomer generation, which is now in their 60s and 70s, are currently inheriting more than $10.4 trillion as their parents have died or are dying and are passing on their wealth to their children. This is the greatest transfer of wealth we are seeing in the history of the world. And the question is, well, what will they do with it? What will become of such affluence? How will they handle it? There was a sociological study done and written up in a book called Rich Kids, extensively investigating people who inherit large trust funds. And the findings were that sudden wealth can be dangerous, often leading to irresponsible living, addictive behavior, gambling, shattered marriages, and divisions among siblings among how the family inheritance should be divided. And a man in the crowd shouts out to Jesus for him to tell his brother to divide up the inheritance with him. How many families become divided in hostility or jealousy or resentment over a family inheritance? Jesus tells the man he's not going to get into this because it's not his place, it's not his purpose to be a judge over family members. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says this, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. You don't have to inherit a trust. We don't have to inherit an estate to be on guard. The disciples haven't received an inheritance, but Jesus still tells them even they need to watch out because stuff can get a hold of us, control us, and it leads to greed. And apparently, there is more than one kind of greed. There's all kinds of greed. I didn't know that until Jesus said that. Who knew? The New Testament lists greed as one of the really worst types of sins. In two of his letters, Paul mentions greed and he says it's nothing less than idolatry. Greed is idolatry. It's putting something in the place of the Lord God in our lives. The essence of greed is keeping what resources God brings to us and we keep it for ourselves. It's the attitude that piles up stuff and lots of stuff simply for our own use. You know, we may find, well, we refrain from murder, we refrain from sexual sin or abusive language. But what if we're act actively practicing greed? Jesus says, watch out. And he gives a warning. Apparently, greed can be a sly thing. And who knows the impact it can have on our souls. And then Jesus adds this, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. One's life does not consist in abundance. Our life isn't about how fancy or how many cars we have. It doesn't consist in how many homes or how big our home is. It does not consist in how much money or food or clothes or toys we have. Jesus says life is not about whether we have a boat or whether we have lots of land or whether we have the fastest computer and the latest iPhone. It doesn't consist, he says, in how much we make in our business or how full our bank or retirement accounts are. So if I want to know, if life doesn't consist in any of those things, then what does life consist of? What is it supposed to be about? 
And that is the question that Jesus answers with the parable he tells next about a rich man. You know, Jesus told 38 parables. If we read the Gospels, he told 38 parables. Interesting, the 17 of the 38 parables have to do with possessions. Uh, one person apparently counted how many times possessions are mentioned in the Bible, and they found 2,172 references in Scripture to possessions. The Bible speaks of our possessions three times more than it speaks of love, seven times more than prayer, eight times more than faith. I was amazed to see that. And about 15% of God's word deals with our stuff. Why? Not because God thinks our stuff is the most important thing about us, but because how we handle our stuff can be a diagnostic tool that reveals how we're doing with the things that are truly important. And what we do with our stuff plays a huge role in our spiritual health. The parable that Jesus tells is about a rich man whose land produced abundance. This man has done very well. By modern standards, he would be considered very, very successful. He would be on Forbes' list. He would be interviewed in the Wall Street Journal. He would be asked to speak at the corporate success seminars. This parable isn't about having our needs met. It's not about paying the bills. It's about abundance. And the man, realizing how much has come to him, asks himself, what should I do with all this abundance? What should he do? He wonders, and this is his plan. Number one, expand and get bigger by tearing down his current barns, building bigger ones so he can store things away. And then... Number two, take early retirement and eat and drink and be merry. And that's his life plan. And the rich man is self-satisfied and he's in his personal comfort. But notice how self-consumed he is. He talks to himself. He focuses on himself, thinks only of himself. He congratulates himself. Read it. And in all of his abundance, he considers nothing outside of his desperate his desires, and his needs. The word I is used six times. The word my is used five times. It's all my and I and me. Why not? Because isn't it the goal of life to get as rich as you can and then you can retire early and then you can just take it easy for the rest of your life. That's what it means to live, isn't it? There was an American businessman who was at a pier in a small coastal village in Mexico. And uh, a small boat with just one fisherman pulled up at the pier. And the boat had just some beautiful yellow fin tuna in there. Just beautiful. And uh, the businessman complimented the fisherman on his fish. And he asked him, how long did it take to catch? And the fisherman said, you know, it only took a little while. And the businessman asked, well, why don't you stay out longer, catch more fish? And the fisherman said, well, he had enough to support his family's immediate needs. The businessman then asked how he spent the rest of his time. And the Mexican fisherman said, well, I sleep late, I fish a little, I play with my children, I take a siesta with my wife Maria, and then I stroll into the village each evening where I play my guitar and sip wine with my amigos. I have a full and busy life, senor. Well, the businessman just shook his head and he said, listen, dude, 
I'm a Harvard MBA. I can help you. You know what you should do? You should spend more time fishing, and then with the proceeds, you can buy a bigger boat. And from the bigger boat, you can begin to buy several boats, and eventually you'd have a whole fleet of fishing boats. And instead of selling your catch to a middleman, you could sell directly to the processor, eventually opening your own cannery, and then you would control the product, the processing, and the distribution. Now, you'd need to leave this small coastal village, and you'd probably need to go to Mexico City and then headquarter in L.A. and eventually in New York. And from New York City, you could run your whole enterprise. And the fisherman asked, well, how long would this take, senor? And the businessman said, hey, 15, 20 years. And the fisherman said, then what, senor? Well, that's the best part, the businessman laughed. Then... When the time is right, you announce an IPO and you sell your community stock to the public and you'll become very rich. You will make millions. Millions, senor, said the fisherman. Then what? And the businessman said, well, then you could retire. You could move to a small coastal fishing village where you could sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, take siesta with your wife and stroll and sip wine and with your amigos in the evening, right? But that's not unlike the message in retirement and financial planning ads. And it's easy to get sucked into that. Anyone ever say to their financial planning advisor when that person asks you what your financial goals are for the future and and say this, you know what, this is my goal. I want to be able to tithe to my church and support that orphanage until the day I drop dead. I want to be able to travel to Haiti every year. And do mission work and Christian service every year. You know, retirement is a concept that's only relevant in cultures of abundance in terms of possessions and time. And when you can live long enough to enjoy something like retirement, like ours. Now, we have to think about retirement because we do live a long time. And we may be forced to stop working and we need something to live on when we get beyond working years. But how we spend the rest of our lives is a matter of faith in our relationship with God. Consider your career. Consider your retirement goals a matter of your spirituality. I suspect that a retirement that honors the Lord isn't one that's only going to be spent on traveling, leisure, and higher living for ourselves. Jesus said, beware of all kinds of greed. That's what he said. Now back to Jesus' parable. The rich man has has more than he can handle. He expands his enterprise. He relaxes in luxury. He's made it. And then into that situation, God speaks. And this is what God says. He calls the man a fool. He's a fool because that very night, his life is demanded of him. And all he invested for himself and all that he's accumulated will go to someone else. And that man stands before the Lord with none of his possessions. And he's a fool because he never realized his dependence on God. His life was from God and his life was for God. Jesus says this man's life was demanded of him. And that word demanded was a business term often used for collecting on a loan. You see... This rich man did not realize that all his abundance was merely on loan from God and was not just for his gratification at all. It was not the abundance of his wealth that was a problem. 
I mean, he worked hard for it. It was gained honestly. Jesus doesn't condemn doing well in this parable. If the land produces well and the business is lucrative and the paycheck goes higher, the question becomes, and this is what Jesus asked, well, what will we do with it? What will we do with it? You know, when adversity and struggles come into our lives, we usually ask this question, don't we? What is God trying to teach me? What does he want me to learn from this? Well, do we ask those same questions when abundance and blessing come in our lives? The man's error was that his only desire was to provide for himself. Jesus says the fatal mistake of that man was that he stored up treasure for himself, but he was not rich toward God. And when he had to stand before God, he had nothing. The message puts Jesus' words like this. That's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. Well, what if we inverted this parable? What if we changed it so that the rich man was rich toward God? And I don't mean to mess with Jesus' words, not to improve on them, not to be irreverent. Jesus' words can't be improved upon. But what if the parable read like this? The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he recognized it was from God. And he asked God, what do you want me to do? For I have more than I need. And the man said, it seems that God wants me to do this. He wants me to give to my place of worship. He wants me to give to that missionary that's been helping those orphans in Africa. He wants me to help build that well in that village in India. And I'll use my knowledge and, and, and all my business sense to mentor this and that person so that they can succeed and flourish in their life. And then the rich man said, God, may what has been given out of this abundance help others pass my lifetime. And God said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you prepared, whose will they be? They'll be for your church and for children who need food and a home and others who belong to the kingdom. What if it read like that? You know, some of us are afflicted with abundance. And by that, I mean God has given us a lot. And there's a certain affliction in that because more is required of us. What can we do with our abundance? Oh, what could we do? You know, the possibilities are vast. We could fund an education. We could support one, two, three, four, five, maybe more children in other countries who have very little. We could buy Bibles for people in places where they have very little and they don't have Bibles. We can provide food and relief for refugees. We can buy supplies and items for a homeless family living in a shelter. We can fix the car of a single parent who has a very low-paying job. We can help build a hospital. We can support missionaries in other countries. We can provide opportunities for people with special needs. We can put food in hungry stomachs. We're a blessed people. And if we're honest, you know, we are debtors, really. We're debtors, not only to God, but to other men and women who have provided our abundance. Farmers and truck drivers who have given us food. Medical people who have provided us health. Teachers and employers have given us opportunities. Mentors have shared knowledge. Laborers give us tools and cookingware and furnaces and air conditioners and cars. Much of what we enjoy is because of other people all over this world. Not to mention what comes to us because of just the grace of God and his goodness towards us. 
some people ask. Why do these sufferings come to me? It just doesn't seem like I deserve them. Sometimes maybe we need to ask, why have these blessings come to me? It doesn't seem like I deserve them. The rich man saw himself and he saw himself alone. He was an individualist gone wild. In a speech at the graduation ceremonies of Occidental College back in 1992, the poet, Maya Angelou, who just died this year, she said, lots of folks way before you were born and way before you came of age paid for you to get here. Pay for somebody else to get there years down the line. Remember, Jesus is not speaking against wealth in this parable. He's not bashing rich people. And I'm not saying that just because I'm a multimillionaire. Don't understand me. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it just for that reason, okay? I mean, wealth can be good. I think he's teaching that with this parable. It can be a blessing. Hospitals, schools, churches, ministries are standing during the work of God, doing the work of God because people with wealth or whose business or land produced abundantly gave and they shared generously and they looked beyond themselves and their own needs. And praise God for those people who out of their abundance got in touch with God's purpose and whose first question is not what should I do, but God, what do you want me to do? And they submit their stuff to the Lord their God. Jesus said, where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be too. Where's your heart? Where's our heart? Our ultimate values are reflected in our stuff, our possessions, our time, our energy, our gifts. And Jesus tells this parable to hold people like us accountable. You know, on the night that my life is demanded, I don't want to be rich toward this world or rich toward myself. I want to be rich toward God. And the biggest way to be rich toward God is to surrender my life to Christ. To recognize his claim on my life, all of it, all of it, not just my soul, all of it, and accept his grace. Because life isn't defined by what we have, even if we have a lot. Life is defined by being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, by having the imprint of his cross and resurrection on our lives and having our lives transformed by him. Life is defined by knowing our sins are forgiven, that we have peace with God, and that an inheritance beyond measure and imagining is awaiting for us when we get to him and this life is over. Because our life is given by God, and the best thing we can do is to give it back. Let's pray. God, all that we are, all that we have, all that you've made us, what do you want us to do with it? Thank you for giving your life to us, Jesus. Amen.